Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and the brightest in the world of business, personal growth, and the music industry to help you harness your own inner tenacity to drive your career forward. Folks, we are amongst greatness today, and we'll get into that in in a moment here. But Stephen Powers, my guest, is a creative entrepreneur, producer, and business leader who was educated at MIT actually dropped out of MIT, correct? Uh, He has a long list of companies that he started and operated, including Agape Media International, Chameleon Records, Charlotte's Web for the Performing Arts, which is an incredible story, which we'll get into. And most recently, which I am, I got to get out there, LA to see it, the Wisdom LA, which is pretty badass. He also served, also served as director of A&R at a little company you might have heard of called Capital Records, and even worked as a director of entertainment at the 1984 LA Olympics. Stephen is a Grammy-winning producer and a 35-year member of the Recording Academy and has made over 150 albums and soundtracks with artists that you probably know like Will I Am, Tina Turner, The Beach Boys, Santana, John Lee Hooker, Duran Duran, Joe Cocker, and many, many more. It's exhausting. Your background is exhausting <laughs> and a whole lot more music and entrepreneurial royalty to cover in one episode, but I will do my best. So let's get to it. Stephen Powers, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you, Adam. It's a joy to be here. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I want to start this off. Let's talk about recent times because a lot of times I start the show going backwards, but I was so blown away in my research of what you're building with Wisdom um, LA, and what, which I think is fascinating to you. You talk a lot. I, I, I believe you just turned you're in your early 70s. I don't want to give away your, your 70 two, years your of age, age really. today. Yeah, not, it's not my birthday, but 70 years of age this year. But you talk so much about how like you're energized and, and revitalized and just creative juices flowing. And that's really what led to, to Wisdom LA. LA. So why don't I stop talking and tell us a little bit about this project, the origins of it and what it means to you in the community? Well, first off, let's let's just uh, mention and I'll agree that, you know, the present moment is the only moment. Right. So we all want to live as much as we can in the present moment and really uh, make the most of that. So the fact that we're starting with what we're doing right now, I love that. Uh, it's not the only thing I'm working on right at the moment, but it is uh, certainly my principal uh, project. So Wisdom is uh, the world's first music, immersive music and art theme park. We opened in 2018 in Los Angeles in the downtown arts district, in the historic arts district. It is geodesic dome exhibition theaters. Now, uh, many people awesome. may have been in a dome, seen something in a dome. For example, our company does a big dome at Coachella. If you've been there, they call it the Antarctica. Nope. We've had domes at Lightning in a Bottle, at uh, Burning Man, at the New Orleans Jazz and Blues Festival. We've done more than 500 installations. But what Wisdom does is that it uses the dome as a movie screen and it completely surrounds the audience 
uh, and the artist fully immersive. In, a, in a fully immersive environment. So it is it is VR without goggles. Uh, it is a uh, it, it, it eliminates that separation between the audience and the artist. And it puts the audience in the scene, in the action, in an interactive uh, space with the artist. And that has a really profound effect, not only on the entertainment value of what you're seeing, which people love, but also on actually how your brain receives the information. I, I and I love it. And and just out of curiosity here, one of the things that like I'm I my I am music is at my soul. It's my heart. Yes. I mean my range of music is everything from the classics to electronic and everything in between there. And one of the things that pains me, and I'm guilty of it, is everyone taking their phones out of concerts. And I'm like, you're sitting there with your phone watching the concert through your phone. I'm like, what the F are you doing? Yeah, yeah, I hear do you, you do you do you do you allow phones, you know, in it or you try to we you do, know, message we people do. to say, and listen, people, be in the moment, be in the experience? No, I mean, we, we, we sort of invite both. Right. I certainly hope that people are experiencing it not through their phone because you can do that on YouTube. You know, if you want, you're, right. you're there. And the big part about what we do at Wisdom is we use all of these technologies, but we do them in a social interaction context. And that's the difference between Meaning. what we do and so many other technology-driven entertainment features, especially VR, is that you're there with your friends, you're there with your wife or your beloved, and you're, you know, you're really able to be with a group of people. And as humans, that really makes a big difference to us, how we, how we feel about it, how we experience it. This is pretty cool. And I want everyone to check it out and we'll talk about it. We'll talk, we'll, we'll link it up. And I want to talk to you offline about something pretty cool uh, that might be uh, some pretty cool synergy there. But it's fascinating. And anyone who knows that the, the more the artists themselves are energized by the crowd and they don't feel that separation and they're part of it, they give it back. And it's a it's a full cycle. It fuels one another. Right. That's exactly right. Uh, artists put out energy and it comes back and it becomes a cycle is exactly the right word. And in fact, uniquely in a dome. And anybody who's been in one of our dome experiences at Wisdom or elsewhere knows this. There's actually a physical thing happening with the energy where it flows up onto the surface of the dome and back onto the audience. And I noticed that when people walk out of Wisdom after a concert, as opposed to being sort of drained, like they were there, they saw it, now they're worn out, they're lit up. I can see the light in their eyes. I can see the energy in their eyes. They walk out and they say, wow, that was so amazing. And I love to see that energetic reaction to the entertainment as well as the mental reaction. I, I love it. And just out of curiosity, what was your first ever concert? Do you remember? I do. It's, it's actually one of those, uh, now, now you're going to be able to log into my bank account, right? So it was Louis, Arm <laughs> it was, it was Louis Armstrong. Uh, and I was just 14. But we're not going to give the year of the date away. Yeah, so that way, right. that way they can't get the code. <laughs> it, was, right? uh, it was Louis Armstrong, the great Louis Armstrong at the... Uh, uh, at the theater in Rockford, Illinois, which is my hometown. And it was fantastic. And I loved it. And I loved every minute of it. I remember it clearly. I, I love it. And, and, I, and I hate to go to the dark side here, but I want to bring everyone back because I think your origin story is critical to laying the foundation of which brings us up today. So we're going to hit the rewind button. Um, and your story starts with an extremely tragic event, uh, losing your sister um, to a tragic uh, drunk driving accident. Um, she was not drunk, by the but, way. There was a drunk who no, ran no, into no, her. No, 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 no. She was hit by. Yeah, she, was, she was just she was, she was, she was hit. Yeah. She was. She was. She was hit by that. And 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 talk about you know. And and she was. She was uh, younger than you, correct? She was fifteen, and I was eighteen at the time. Yes. And she was. Uh, she was being driven by my younger brother, who was sixteen, and she was starring in the high school play on the night of her passing. Uh, and then this tragic accident happened. This I had been. Um, 
arrested for drunk driving multiple times. So, you know, these right. days we have we have laws and, against that and we have mad. But but I uh, I was very profoundly impacted by that happening. It caused me to realize that we don't know how long we have in life. And then if we should really assess who we are and what we want to do and get about doing that, because we may or may not have a long life. I've been blessed to have a long life. We talked about that. But I but she did not. Uh, and so it really shifted not only my understanding of life and, and the time that we have, but also caused me to look inward and realize I was more of an artist than a technologist. Interesting. And correct me at the time, you, you, were, you were at MIT studying molecular biology and, and you decided to drop out, right? Well, I didn't drop out immediately. So what happened, and this is, I don't know if I've shared this on a podcast, but the state of Illinois, this I grew up- Podcast I, exclusive. Yeah, here it is. <laughs> The state of Illinois decided to compensate her brothers and sisters, including myself. I had five siblings in my family um, with a thousand dollars, you know, for our loss and our pain. Uh, and I took that thousand dollars in my uh, junior year uh, and uh, the summer of my junior year. And I opened a coffee house called the Orpheus Coffee House. And it was uh, for, you know, live music performers and coffee and tea. And I was inspired by the great coffee houses of the 1960s that were rarely where the folk boom, you know, the Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and all those great Joan artists Baez. came out of. And so I said, I'm going to do that with this, with this money. So I opened uh, the Orpheus Coffee House in 1971, and I closed it when I went back to school at MIT. But little did I know that there was a couple, patrons of the arts, their names are Bill Howard and Karen Howard, who came regularly to the Orpheus. And they phoned me and they said, listen, you don't know us, but we used to come to your place. We loved it. And if we were to support you and to, to help fund you and to get you a building, would you be willing to do this on a permanent basis? So that was the genesis of Charlotte's Web, which I so then opened a year later. Name, name, named after, named named after, after my after your sister. sister. And, and as do I said, it's, it, was my, it was my healing journey. So it was a way that I could honor her memory and I could also support the arts and I could really myself find a way back to the joy that had been the characteristic of my life. So you never went back to get your degree? Well, I, I, they offered me this opportunity. I was literally four credits short of but, my degree, one class. You, but, but the opportunity was you, right here, right now. We talked about the present moment. And so I said, I am going to do take you, this opportunity. I kind of intended to go back to school. My mom was a PhD you never know of education, but you. we don't know where life's going to take us. And as it turned out, this put me on a path that I was uh, very substantial and very rewarding. That's so interesting too. I mean, do you ever look back and, 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 and say, what if, what if I completed my degree or you're like, you know what? Life took me in this direction. I think I, I made the right choice. I don't have a lot of regrets That's... about it. I, I, I only have, you know, and now I'm, I'm able to cite, you know, and this is completely immodest, you know, but I mean, Steve Jobs <laughs> did not graduate from Stanford. Uh, Bill no. Gates I mean, did not graduate of... from Harvard. Right. Uh, no. you know, no. modern day, uh, you know, Facebook, uh, yep. you know, uh, so it's, you know, it, it's a common story for people who are eager to get on with their life. Not that I'm one that I recommend, and I hope my own children don't do that. <laughs> but and but I and, and and I want to I want and I I want I mean you're you're no I hate to say this you're no stranger to tragedy and I want I want to ask this very respectfully about another loss in your life ten years later where your older sister and a husband passed away in a plane crash. I mean, that's how how do you how how inside do you do you do you, manage that and compartmentalize where you could give the time and the space for grief and recovery 
and still keep your life and career trajectory going forward? Well, it's, it's of course, very, very difficult. And I know that there's a lot of other tragedy. Most people experience loss in their lives. One of the things that I've come to understand is that I'm not alone in that process. Um, but yes, my older sister, almost exactly 10 years later, died in a private plane crash uh, and, uh, and her husband and their unborn baby. It was just unbelievable. Um, it's tragic. My reaction at the time was to say, I've already dealt with this once. I, I, I managed to get my life back on track. I did something significant that I'm, I'm happy with. And I had found my stride and my joy again, only to have it happen again. And, and it was a very different experience the second time around. Because rather awesome. than, than embracing, oh, I, there's a process by which I can heal myself. I, I started to be angry, which I had never been. It really became at my core. So you're not, you weren't an angry person. You no, weren't, an, an, angry you weren't person angry on the all. inside. But, but this made me like, I literally say mad at God. I was like, how could you put this much on me to deal with, right? But what I have since come to understand is that we don't, we're not given challenges that we're not able to, to meet and somehow <laughs> deal with. Right, that we have all this opportunity. I solely believe in that. I deeply, deeply believe in yeah, that. Yeah, and, and so I eventually, um, it took me longer, a couple years, uh, to begin to say, no, Stephen, you cannot go down, you know, and just, and just sulk and be sorry and be unhappy because that's not who you are and that's not what your life is about. And that's not what Ellen, who was my sister, would, would have wanted. So positive, I eventually started attitude. kind of pulling my up by my bootstraps it was a different process uh but uh but i got there you know with it uh, however it took me a long time even once i was back and working right and then i went to los angeles i became the director of entertainment at the olympics as you mentioned i started working at capitol records my life was going well but there was an unhealed part of me that was still sort of mad at god and mad at this whole process and i eventually found a spiritual center the Agape International Spiritual Center, where the, the teachings of Michael Beckwith, who's the founder, really resonated with me about how we, the choices that we have that allow us to, to move through life and understand everything as a challenge, everything as an opportunity for growth. And so it was through that spiritual awakening, not religious, but spiritual awakening, that I was able to find my joy again. That's fascinating. Did you were you a, a person of faith prior to losing? Well, I was raised as a sisters? Catholic, but but I didn't really resonate with the Catholic. Uh, well, the difference liturgy. between being religious and being and being faith and spiritual. Like I'm a strong believer in faith and spirit, but I'm not a religious person. Right. There, there's differences. Yeah, and I I didn't strongly resonate with the Catholic teachings uh, because there's a part of the liturgy that most Catholics would know, which is is goes in Latin: mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. And it means my fault, my fault, my most grievous fault. And as a young man, everything. yeah, as a young man, I was like, what fault are we talking about? Life is good. Life is amazing. And I did nothing wrong. So I really couldn't accept <coughs> that way of being and that way of understanding the world. And so as soon as I got to be a young adult, I said, I'm going to move away from that. There were great teachings in the and Christian tradition, but it's not for me. Yeah, and everyone everyone has their own journey and their own way of dealing with trauma and internalizing it and, and moving forward. So I want I want to shift gears and I and I we got to talk music industry here. I yeah, am a, yeah. uh, to say I'm a, to say I'm a music fan is, is an understatement here. And you've got over over five decades, fifty years in the entertainment industry. And so after Charlotte's Web, you launched um, 
uh, Mountain Railroad Records. And I noticed that this is one of your longest tenures as a, as a company or label. I want to talk about the early years from a business perspective. We'll get into a couple of crazy stories in a moment there. But Stephen, what was one of those early lessons? And, and let's take it back. First of all, what year was that? Uh, Did you launch it? Well, I recorded the first my first album in 1973, which was called Get okay, Folk. So- uh, it was a live at Get Charles folked, Webb. everybody. Yeah, exactly. A little pun, right? Get folked live at and, Charlotte's Webb. And uh, it was all of the original songwriters and singers who played at Charlotte's Webb. And uh, that album is still like in a print. Compilation. 50 years later, that album is still in print. And, uh, and more than so, a, uh, a dozen, half a dozen of the artists who were on it went on to have significant musical careers. And hit. Let's name drop a couple of those. <laughs> well, Steve Goodman. Uh, you know, uh, Michael Johnson, Ronda Greeney, uh, artists that are not um, household names. Uh, Greg Brown but was the second album that I did. But if you're scene. into folk music, if you're into singer songwriters, you would but my know mom knows artists. them. Yeah. Steve my Goodman, mom, of course, be was, on my, mom. was on an album that I did on Mountain Railroad called Gathering at the Earl of Old Town. It was the first recording of the city of New Orleans, which is now an iconic song. Everyone knows. Interesting. So let, let's let's go back to that early days of starting a business. I mean, what were some of the similarities and parallels and challenges to starting a business in the mid '70s and starting a business in in the 2020s? Well, first off, the technology is entirely different. So the skill set that you need <laughs> if you're doing a record label is completely different because when Apple Music came along, it completely upended the music business and how it worked. Right. So instead, it's Spotify and it's streaming and it's all of that. So it's a very very different process. But it was also um, Back then, the idea of having an independent record label, although it had been occurring since the 1940s and the 1950s, and some of my great heroes were those people who founded independent record labels. So we're talking about Sam Phillips of Sun Records. We're talking about Jack Holzman of Elektra Records. We're talking about Vivian and Jimmy Bracken, DJ Records, that put out the first Beatles record and all kinds of great hits. It was an amazing label based out of Chicago. We're talking the Chess Brothers, uh, who did Chess Records, which was Chuck Berry's label. I love these independent labels. And I love the idea that you could discover somebody. You know, Sam Phillips discovered Elvis Presley. It wasn't RCA Records. It was an independent label. And the independent labels have always been the leaders when it came to breaking new ground in new traditions. And we saw that again when the rap music started happening and hip hop started happening. Yeah. All independent labels, not the major. So they were my heroes. No, absolutely. And that's what I wanted to do. Interesting comparison. I kind of think about it too. It's kind of a, a similarity, a parallel. You think about these startups, and you think about the the, the the venture, you know, companies that find them. Yeah. Right. These independent companies that find them and, and pull them up there. It's about discovering talent and having a skill and an ear for discovering talent. And it, and listen, I'm a recruiter by trade. I'm a marketing, advertising, and media recruiter. And I think having that skill set to discover talent transcends various industries and time. It, Would you say it, the it same? It does. I, I agree with that. Um, And I want to speak for a second to record labels because there's a lot of opinion these days that what do I need a record label for, you know, amongst recording artists, right? And so my answer to that would be this. It used to be distribution. Now you can get distribution on on iTunes and so forth. Uh, But what what is different is that you get a, you actually get a... um, A person like myself, you know, a, a consultant, a advisor, an advocate mm-hmm. who is a reflection and can help you to refine what you're offering. So not always does an artist know exactly what the best thing is, what their best songs are, whatever. It's very good to have somebody who can be a uh, sounding board for you. And that's what a Literally. producer in a record label can be. In addition, what record labels have always delivered is marketing. 
So it's one thing to put your songs on iTunes. It's another to have yeah, them not discovered. every artist is a marketer. Yeah, exactly. And so if you're not a marketer, you get a marketing team, you get a sounding board, you get advice and counsel, uh, you get production. And it used to be you get you got money as well. So there were people who would they would pay for your recording. And yes, you can record in your home studio, but you can do a different level of recording in a major studio or a big studio, and you yeah. can do a different level of production. And different, different levels of quality there too. The podcast is brought to you in partnership with Venturi, the recruitment operating system, the all-in-one tech platform purposely built for recruitment and staffing to unify your front, middle, and back office operations. Venturi is designed by recruiters for recruiters. Both the company and the platform are the unique creations of successful recruiters who sold their business, saw a need for a better recruitment tech, and made it happen. And if you're looking to upgrade your recruitment tech and give your recruiters a new modern operating system, visit Venturi.io slash podcast. That's V-I-N-C-E-R-E dot I-O backslash P-O-Z-C-A-S-T for an exclusive offer. Thanks. So how the heck did you land the gig of uh, the LA Olympics in 84? Oh, that's another crazy story. My life is filled with synergistic moments. Uh, I, I love syner- synergy. is my life, man. Uh, synergy is my life. Well, this is, I'll try to make this brief. Uh, I was living in Madison, Wisconsin at the time. I, had, I was the big fish in the small pond. I had Mountain Railroad. I had all the major acts that were in the Midwest, but none of them were nationally known. And I decided it was time for me to make a move to either New York or LA. And mm. I knew people in New York. And so I moved to Greenwich Village and I was living in, in Greenwich Village. But before I left, I had a beautiful little house on the, on, the, on the lake in Madison, Wisconsin. And a number of college students moved in and rented the house after me. And as I left, I said, here's the phone number where I'm moving to in New York. If anybody is trying to reach me or you get mail to forward or whatever, the guy said, okay, well, we'll take that. So six months later, I get a phone call from the Olympics uh, because I had sent my resume in and it was the phone number for this house in Madison that had been there. Well, the Olympics <laughs> called that phone number and they said, we're looking no for way. Stephen Powers. And the guy said, oh, well, he moved away like six months ago. But you know what? I think he gave me a phone number and I think it's in a drawer here somewhere. And he looked no around way. in the drawer and he goes, oh, here it is. And he gave them the phone number for me in um, and in New York. And the woman called. And what happened is they had fired the person who was the director of entertainment, had been there for three years working on the program. They were dissatisfied with his work and they needed to replace him one year before the Olympics. And so they told the secretary who worked for him to go look in the file drawer and see if they, she found <laughs> she anybody can... interesting. And she pulled out my info with that. So phone she number. recruited you. She recruited me and she called me and she said, you know, this is interesting. I'm going to I'm going to tell the next boss up. And in the course of the day, uh, one day, I had four phone calls with the various levels of, uh, of Olympic brass. And at the end, it was Peter Ubroff, who was the head of the Olympics. And he said to me, I hear you're our guy. And I said, I am. And, and, and he that's, didn't even identify me. Imagine, imagine, imagine that. Back, we're talking, I mean, probably a year or two earlier. This we're was talking in the early yeah. 80s. Yeah. 83, a hyper-efficient recruitment and interview process, people. This is fascinating. It's a fascinating <laughs> example. So, how, how mind boggling it? How mind boggling was it to be on a world stage? Well, like it that? was. He was usually life stressful. Usually life changing. Yeah. So he said to what me, you, "What do you remember? What's yeah, what do you, yeah, well, what do you remember yeah, from that?" First off, I remember that there was 120 nations all living in the Olympic Village, and my job was to put on entertainment for the athletes in the Olympic Village, and it was actually it was a, a part of the security <laughs> budget because Peter Ubroff said to me. If we need you to keep these athletes in the Olympic Village so we can protect them. 
It was just eight yeah. years after the assassination of the athletes in Munich at the Olympics. Yeah. And so it was a very hyper uh, security scenario. And, and I said, great. And it, what was unique about it is that in my 10 years in business, it had always been market driven. How many tickets could I sell? How many records could I sell? And so forth. Here, it was a budget that had none of that associated with it. He said, just put on the most incredible program of entertainment that you can imagine so that, and there's no limit on the budget, just go for it. That was very unique that that was happening. And the other thing that was unique for me was it was the first time I had been in a world environment. And it really showed me how diverse the world is. When you bring 120 nations all together with their different culture, their different clothes, their different ways of being, and their different music, that was really exciting to me. So what was what was a mis maybe let, let's let's peel that back a little bit and pause here and, and and talk about this. What was maybe a misconception you had from a global perspective about people, cultures, the way the way people from different countries interacted? Was there a misconception that got proven wrong to I you? I think there was less a misconception than a lack of exposure. So I had not been able to travel That's the world. Fair. You know, I had not been to Saudi Arabia or to uh, you know uh, some distant place in China or whatever. But all of a sudden, all those people came to me. So it was totally delightful. And I got to personally interact with them in the uh, in the entertainment events that I was producing. Was there anything from that time in the early 80s that kind of laid the foundation to some of the work that you're doing now with with wisdom and other projects? Well, first of all, it, on, it, it absolutely like... cemented my my global view. Right. Of like, OK, it's Love one it. world. Mm -hmm. There's no way that we're, we should be at war with each other, that we should be you know hating each other. We're all in this together. That's an old phrase, but it was so evident to me when I saw all these athletes and all of their uh, delegations from 120 nations and everybody was getting along and everybody loved each other and was connecting. And, you know, they had this mutual thing of their athleticism, but it was so evident to me. So that's one thing that definitely shaped my worldview. Secondly, I, I started to see scope and scale. So I had moved out of the Midwest and all of a sudden, boom, the yeah. world stage, right? This was a big deal. <laughs> and uh, that was exciting to me. And it really reinforced for me that this is what I wanted to do. And then, frankly, it was because the Olympics were such a phenomenon in L.A. and uh, people were intrigued by my Thanks. having that job that I got the job at Capitol Records. That's why, you know, and because otherwise I was just a Midwestern record producer. Who cares? But what? Yeah, I, what I mean, was, but look at that resume. Yeah. Right. Well, you put on your resume. Uh, hey, uh, Mr. Powers, what did you do uh, prior to interviewing here at uh, Capitol Records? Oh, you were the director of entertainment at the L.A. Olympics. OK, not too shabby. Yeah, that was certainly a door opener for you. It was. So let's talk about your time at Capitol Records, um, director of A&R. I mean, one of your most, you know, we talk about our time, The Healer by John Lee Hooker. And I wasn't too familiar with it. I've been listening to it a few times since then. Fantastic track. But let's talk a little bit about for any folks that don't know. What, first of all, what does A&R stand for? What does it mean? And why is it such a crucial piece of the music process? So it stands for artist and repertoire. So you are the persons, and there's a whole team of people at Capitol who sign artists to the label, uh, who then work with those artists. And in particular, if you're good at it, you're going to focus on their songs because songs are the, they're the real estate of the music business. That's what makes it work. Uh, you know, there's an old expression <laughs> Uh, that we used to use, it's rather crude, that you cannot polish a turd, right? So if you've got oh, a poor song- it. Or lipstick on a pig. Yeah, lipstick right. on a pig, same idea, exactly, right? So you've got to have a great song. So the focus is the artist, and then, then the other focus is the repertoire or the song. So you sign the artist, and then you sort of go through the whole process of making their record with them, helping them choose a producer, helping them choose the songs, shaping the album. What are you trying to accomplish? That's the role of a producer. So it's a creative job at, 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 uh, at a big label. 
uh, and the one that is, you know, for the most part, most people desire because you have that signing well, power. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about that. I mean, listen, the LA Olympics were no slouch, but you're going over to Capitol Records and it's a different ball game. It's the major leagues. What was an early mistake that you made in those early days at, at, at Capitol Records? I, I didn't understand initially that the business of Capitol uh, is about selling millions of albums. So finding an artist who was amazing and artistic and wonderful but probably wouldn't sell more than 50,000 albums was so not commercial the viability. business model. Yeah. So I really took a while for me to, to shift gears from my independent label, where if I sold 50,000 albums, and I did that a couple of times on Mountain Railroad, that was a big success. Now I had to figure out, can we sell a million albums? And it was a different mindset. And it took me a little while to get into that understanding. So let, let, let's take it back. And I want to get back to cameras again. Do you think, do you think, Phones on cameras ruined rock and roll. Do you think the fact that you go back to all these, you know, crazy stories and times because you couldn't document it like we do now, you couldn't share it instantly on social media, you know, artists, personalities, people were able to have a private life. What's your take? Well, I don't think anything has ruined rock and roll. I think rock and roll is alive and well and vibrant and, and still doing well. And of course, like all musical forms, it shifts. And now we have hip hop as really the predominant pop music uh, form, but it also incorporates elements of rock. So, you know, I, I wouldn't use that term, but I'm a, a diehard optimist, so I wouldn't say it ruined it. Now, did it change it? Yes. Ruined is the wrong one. Correct. Yeah, Thank you. I'll, I'll take a step back on that. Change yeah. it big time. Yeah, I definitely changed it. No question about it. You know, but let me talk, come back to wisdom and tell you something that I'm noticing there from Please. my music business experience. So it used to be that in order to be a rock star, you know, you had to look like Justin Bieber, have some tight abs, you know, hit the gym, and mm. you were really selling the way you looked as much as the way your music was, right? To be that kind of sexy, you know, star. Now with Wisdom, you can be 50 years old, like our Pink Floyd band that does uh, Beyond the Wall. Uh, and they're called Think X oh, is the name of the band. They're amazing. And they're all rock stars. It's Stephen Perkins of Jane's Addiction. It is oh, uh, cool. Kenny Olsen of Kid Rock. It is uh, Roberta Freeman who, who recorded and toured with Pink Floyd and Scott Page who recorded and toured with Pink Floyd. They're all stars, but they're in their 50s. They don't look like a sexy young thing anymore, right? But they're playing better than they ever have in their careers. So what happens in wisdom is the visual attention goes to the dome. The eyes go up. We're looking at these incredible visual images and storytelling that we're doing on the dome and not so much just looking at the stage at the star. So it is actually creating a second life that isn't focused on how they look. And I like that about it. I love this. Yeah. Wow, I, 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 I love this. I mean, I'm sure they want some eyeballs on them, but as long as people are enjoying the music, it, it's a fascinating concept, like a fine wine getting better with age. Absolutely true. And it's interesting. I mean, let's talk about like, you know, the rockers that are still out there. You know, you they're, they're all still touring. You know, the who's coming back around. And many around. of them are playing um, better than they ever did in their whole life. They're actually better on their instruments than they were when they were 23. I saw for the first time, it's crazy. So I have a bucket list, right? Everyone has their bucket list. I'm finally seeing McCartney on his last date here in New York. Nice. I've never seen Paul McCartney. Last summer, my first big concert when, uh, at the end of COVID, I finally saw Guns N' Roses and I finally got to experience Slash. And I, I've never been blown, and I, and I love guitar and I've never been blown away by somebody on guitar like Slash. Wonderful. Yeah, he's, and, he's an amazing right, like, guitarist. Like, I actually got the opportunity to... Uh, we were talking about John Lee Hooker to spend an evening with Axl Rose because he shared a dressing room with John Lee Hooker at a Rolling Stones concert that they both performed That's at. That's crazy. So Rolling Stones did a concert where they brought up 
people that they admired. One of them was John Lee Hooker and Axl Rose sang um, uh, Salt of the Earth, you know, the great uh, Stone song about, wow. uh, and he, he killed it. But he and I and John Lee were in the same dressing room all night and he was fabulous. And he pitched his brother, who also had a band to me, to my label Chameleon, through the whole night. He was like, you gotta sign my brother. He's great, he's great. It was wonderful and it was fun, but they are a great band. Great, great band. Ax, Ax, Axel's voice, you know, I mean, it's, 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 I don't know how much it's holding up, but he, he still puts on a show. Yeah, yeah. And you he's know, a great he, writer. He, he def- and, a, you what, know, he's a, just a piano doing? player, too. Don't doubt that Axel Rose on the piano. Yeah. He's a, he's a pretty good piano player as well. What, what, what new rock out there inspires you when you're listening to? What bands out there in the last, you know, you know, five, 10, 15 years are you listening to that you love? Oh, that's a good question. So, um, I mean, I love, uh, you know, John Mayall, I, th- I mean, sorry, John Mayer, I think is, is uh, fantastic. John Mayall. Would you arg- arg- arguably, arguably the, the best guitarist of our generation right now? Yeah, yeah. Very, very, very wonderful artist. Um, you know, my I have, I have three teenagers, 13, 15, and 17. So they get to choose the music these days. So they're, they're, <laughs> really, uh, they're really pop music fans for the most part. Uh, so Billie we Eilish listen to Billie Dragons. Eilish. We listen to Justin Bieber. She we, just won an Oscar last night. How about that? That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I've come to learn and, and love all of those groups, right? I mean, I like Katy Perry. I think she's really a great artist. Uh, uh, so there's there's a lot of them, you know, that I enjoy. It's crazy. You know, strangely, Miley Cyrus is growing on I me. Like I, I don't like Cyrus go out and buy well. her. Yeah. But there, there's something. There's something about her vibe. So I want. I want to get back to business here. And now that you're working much more, you know, you're, you're you've always been in this creative mindset. So what is that secret of creating an environment where business and creativity could thrive? Because a lot of times there's a tension between the two. What's the secret sauce there? You know, I think that's just the gift of who I am and how my brain works. So always from my youngest days. I was identified as both being left brain and right brain. That's how I ended up at MIT when I was fundamentally an, you know, an artist and a creator because I had both aspects of those. And actually my whole career has, has kind of existed on the nexus, on the connection between those two things because sometimes people are one or the other. They can be very creative, but mm. they can't be good business or they can be very business, but they can't be good creative. And I find that, ba- that balance and that blend between the two and that's what's been sort of valuable about me. I've been a business entrepreneur as well as a, a producer and an A&R person. And I, the secret sauce, balance. Yeah, I mean, you if know, you could balance, share that with someone out there, Balance is secret right? in life balance. anyway, right? We need to find balance. So you need to kind of look at both sides. In Hollywood, we say, let's love it for five minutes and let's hate it for five minutes. So you really need to look at, at both sides of every equation. And scientists, quite frankly, learn how to do that. Right? They don't accept the first result of an experiment. They continue to test and test and test and see if they can disprove it. So it's very valuable to try to say, no, let me just fall in love with something. Let me also be discerning and, and kind of look at what the negatives might be. And what, and what, I, what I love about what you're doing too is you're tying the roots of music and performance and showmanship and show production and bringing it into the modern age and teaching the folks on your team leading by example out there. Cause for me, music is an experience. It's experiential and changing the game and giving unique experiences. Are you, are you familiar? Have you seen, um, you know, what Kanye West has been doing with his two Donda, you know, the two albums. Yeah. Like taking yes, over the stadiums sure. of Miami. Yeah. In fact, he I mean, wants investing to, he, he, his own dollars. Yeah. That's amazing. Right. I, I know. And, and by the way, he, he only wants to now perform in a dome. He actually told Coachella if they would build him a dome, he would come. But otherwise, he didn't want to do it. Kanye so he's very focused on on having a dome because he understands the power of that medium uh, in terms of how it re- relates to the audience and how it translates 
something creative to the audience. And and what kind of statement? I mean, what kind of statement is that? Like, you know, when the, when the artist you know invests their own money. I mean, listen, you could argue, listen, you're charging you know X amount of dollars for for content, but when they're putting it back into the production, I mean, that's the way it should be. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the performance. I, I pretty much think that's true of whatever you're doing. If you're an artist, or if you're a business person, or you're a craftsperson, if you're not willing to invest in yourself, why do you expect somebody else? You know, it's a really important yeah. question applies, to kind of ask yourself. And that applies to everything. So I'm going to I'm going to ask you a dream question here. If you had unlimited resources, unlimited access, who would be your dream act to have in the wisdom? Hmm. Like, well, we've invited, a super a bunch, we've, we've invited a bunch of them, right? And last night we had Stuart Copeland at Wisdom for really? a Grammy party. Yeah, of the police, right? Uh, the great, great well, of uh, course. Stuart Copeland. Uh, and he was he was there for a, he's nominated for a Grammy with Ricky Cage, who's an Indian artist. It's called Divine Tides is the album. They were all there oh, cool. at Wisdom. I mean, obviously, they're they're an amazing group. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, gosh, uh, you know, we've had a lot of big name artists there. Actually, we've had Diplo, we've had uh, you know EDM artists, we had Bootsy Collins come and do it. So we're attracting nice. those people. So I'm actually inviting the universe to bring to us uh, whoever Ooh. wants to be involved in this creative field. Now, who would be one of my, obviously Yours. the Beatles were a huge, you know, but we can't have the Beatles anymore because they're, you know, several of them gone, right? Paul McCartney would be an excellent choice. He's just, you know, one of the most brilliant songwriters and artists and singers, you know, of all time. And I'm going way back with these kinds of choices, right? Uh, because I'm of that age where these were the people who were so profound to me when I was growing up. Um, today, who would that be? Um, you know, I, I mentioned Katy Perry before. Her brother performs at Wisdom in a band. Uh, that that is there. So she's been there a number of times, and and, and she's another it. one that takes so much pride in her in her showmanship and and costumes. Yeah, and, and she's stage about production. something. It's you know, the, she's about women's empowerment. Right? Same she's with Lady Gaga. They have... Yeah, Gaga is actually interested in in wisdom and has talked about mm. having a dome experience. Some of the artists would like to find a way to create something that uses their brand and that feels like the audience is very close to them, mm -hmm. but they don't have to be there in person all the time. So to kind of create a, a you know, a, a show that kind of brings the people close to them without them having to be on the road all the time. Um, it's fantastic. So, yeah. But, but again, I would go back to some of the classic artists in terms of, could be uh, fun. You know, let's have the Beatles, let's have the Stones, give, let's have whoever. Give them a different experience, yeah. right? Give them a different experience than just being up on, on, on the stage here. So let's bring it home here. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation. I love shooting the shit on rock and roll history. Uh, we need to use these opportunities on podcasts and other documentaries as a time capsule. You know, to to share with our kids because the legend, the legends, are, the legends are dying, and and that's why I said, you know, on my bucket list, I'm I'm gonna go see McCartney. You know, I'm not gonna miss him. I was gonna go see Guns and Roses. I did that. Um, so let's bring it home here, Stephen. What is the single greatest piece of advice you've ever received that you take action on every single day of your life? Well, uh, one of the simple ones is don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today. Right. So people often ask me, how are you so productive? And I fill every single moment with something that I can be productive with. So the other thing that I often share if I'm being a keynote speaker or on a, on a show is people say, well, how did you do so much? Or how did you, you know, get there? And I basically say work, work, work. So it's the 98% perspiration, you know, or 99%, 1% inspiration. Too many people think having a good idea is the end all and be all. No, it's having a good idea and then doing all the work necessary to bring that into fruition. 
An idea is nothing unless you execute on it. That's exactly. I, mean, it. I know that firsthand. So, right, you, know, you can have I'm the best worker. ideas in the world, but if you're not pulling the trigger, yeah. no, you got you got to make it happen. What w- what would you say is your superpower? What do you do better than almost anyone on this planet that makes Stephen Powers? You know, no pun intended. What is your superpower? Gratitude. I always and constantly suggest say to people, and I really deeply feel it. I'm grateful for my own life. I'm grateful for their contributions. I'm grateful for their art. I'm grateful whether they're the janitorial team or the box office team or the engineer in the studio, whatever way that they are contributing, that they are delivering their gifts and talents, I'm deeply grateful. I love it. That's fantastic. And last but not least, you know, you look back on your life and you look back at those, you know, awful traumatic experiences of, of losing both your sisters. And, and in those times, in those moments when, Stephen, you had to dig down deep inside and, and harness that tenacity to pull you up and out and forward. And in the same breath right now, when I, I, your, your energy and enthusiasm is, is infectious and I feel it. And when you want to show gratitude and thankful for this life that you created, your family, the successes of your business and what those businesses have, they've empowered so many others and inspired and you keep creating a platform for magic and music. Stephen Powers, what keeps you focused in life? What keeps you going in the right direction? What is your North Star? My mission since I've been 20 years of age is to use arts and entertainment to uplift the human spirit. And I am grateful that I've had so many opportunities to do that. So what keeps me going is when I see the joy, the delight, the impact, somebody learns something, somebody is positively affected, somebody smiles. It's just what I see on the faces and in the energy and in the responses of the people that I'm touching. And that's what I've always wanted to do, and I'm grateful to do it. I love it. Stephen Powers, thank you so much for spending time with me and my audience today. Please hang with me one moment here as we sign off. Where can folks find you? Where can they connect with you? Where can they learn more? Well, you can go to wisdom.la, so W-I-S-D-O-M-E. The root word is wisdom, So, but add the E and you got a wisdom. It's a good play. And it's .la, uh, so that's our website. You can do that. You can find me on LinkedIn. I've got you know a lot of followers there, um, so you know that's a, that's a good way to connect. I actually don't have a personal website, but I'm going to get that up this year. It's about time. Yeah. Websites are so 2000. <laughs> Stephen, I want to thank you so much for joining me and everyone listening at home. This has been a fun one. Please check out Wisdom LA if you're out there. I know I'm going to get out there next time. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I could get a backstage pass. We'll figure it all out. Guys, remember, you can find out everything about this show at thepodcast.com. Follow us on all the social media channels. Remember, look out for one another. Take care of each other and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Pausecast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com.